0: The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear, superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com. Welcome
1: to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred
2: Hoffman. Water issues dominate the farm news this week, both in the fields as well as in downtown Sacramento and Washington, D.C. We have the details. The pressure is on to ban the use of a widely used agricultural chemical. We look at the problems that farmers would face if there is a ban protecting your poultry during a heat wave we've got tips and an interview with a geomorphologist he's traveled the world studying farm soils and he says the successful farmers throughout the globe rely on three easy to implement tactics all that crop reports and a lot more on this week's kste farm hour let's get started Some of California's decisions about how to use its water would be relegated to the federal government under a bill passed by the House of Representatives last week. The Los Angeles Times reports that the Gaining Responsibility on Water Act sponsored by Central Valley Representative David Valdeo, a Republican from Hanford, was approved in the House by a 230 to 190 vote that's largely along party lines. Republicans say the bill will bring more water to the park Central Valley. California's Democratic Senators have promised to fight the bill in the Senate because it weakens California's ability to manage its own resources. Republicans are saying the bill would streamline dam construction and other water storage projects while allowing more water from the Sacramento San Juan River Delta to be used in the Central Valley rather than flowing out to the sea. In a statement released earlier in the week, Senator Diane Feinstein and the state's new Senator Kamala Harris, both Democrats, said they would do what they can to stop the bill in the Senate. <music> In downtown Sacramento at the Capitol, Senate Bill 49 by Senator De Leon of Los Angeles establishes that existing federal air, climate, water, labor, and endangered species regulations are enforceable under state law and is meant to maintain current regulations despite any future changes by President Donald Trump. Now, that has passed the Senate. It is on to the Assembly Natural Resources Committee. Now, this sounds like this could be the return of WOTUS, the Waters of the United States, one of the promises Donald Trump kept where he had the EPA sort of roll back the rules that many farmers found completely ridiculous as far as what they could do on their own land. But SB 49 apparently would uh, maybe give the state the power to reinstate that. Will it? won't it? I don't know. Let's talk with the California Farm Bureau. We're talking with Noel Kremers. She's the Director of Natural Resources and Commodities for the Farm Bureau. And Noel, what, what are the impacts of SB
3: 49?
1: Well, what it does is essentially say California can never make any changes to our environmental laws if it's different than what was in place January 19th, 2017. So it locks into place all the existing environmental regulations, and if anything's changed at the federal level, California can't accept those changes. We get locked in to what had already been approved previously, which means if five years from now we realize that there was something put forward that doesn't work and actually is worse, uh, making things worse, California can't make that change because that could be considered backsliding which is prohibited under
2: the law. The Ag Council of California has come out against SB 49. Uh, What is the Farm Bureau's position on it?
1: We're strongly opposed to the bill because we think that California needs to have flexibility in how we manage our environment. And there are plenty of situations where we're learning that what we thought was the right answer isn't, and we need to have the ability to make changes and adjust.
2: The next stop for this bill is the State Assembly's Natural Resources Committee.
4: The drought in the Northern Plains taking its toll on spring and Durham wheat crops. USDA Wednesday forecasting spring wheat production at 423 million bushels, down 21% from a year ago, yields per acre off by almost 7 bushels, Durham wheat output down 45%. Weather has been kinder to winter wheat, USDA raising its production forecast to 1.28 billion bushels, up 2% from the June forecast, still down 23% from a year ago. Result, as we've seen lately, rising wheat prices, analysts raising that forecast half a dollar to an average 480 a bushel. Ninety-one cents more than this past season for corn. That June acreage report taking acreage up almost a million acres from what had been expected. So USDA is adding one hundred ninety million bushels to its crop forecast, now at just over fourteen and a quarter billion bushels. That takes ending stocks up. USDA's price forecast down to an average three thirty a bushel, down a nickel from this season's average. Soybeans production a bit over four and a quarter billion bushels. Prices nine forty a bushel, a dime higher than this past season. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington.
2: It is the middle of summer, but orchards are still feeling the effect of the winter flooding. In early 2017, high and fluctuating water flows, unprecedented for their duration, passed through the Sacramento and Feather Rivers. Walnut orchards were hurt by these flows due to direct flooding, indirect flooding via under levee seepage, as well as loss of land through riverbank erosion. Many orchards had standing water from January through mid May. In other orchards, ditches overflowed with nowhere to pump the water out. Unlike previous years where floods occurred from levee breaks such as in 86 and 97, trees in 2017 had a much longer exposure to waterlogged conditions. The Sacramento Valley Orchard Source website has these considerations if you manage a walnut grove. Flooded walnut orchards will likely respond to irrigation differently than normal since the root systems are compromised. In saturated soils, fine roots die, and depending on the extent of flooding, larger roots can die as well. It takes time for the root system to regain functionality and restart new fine root production after flooding. If the soil remains saturated at some level below the surface, the only functional roots may be at a very shallow depth, and irrigation may have to be initiated earlier than normal. But in this case, shorter but more frequent irrigations could help avoid further damage to roots in the upper zone. And carefully monitor both soil water levels and walnut tree water status so that the trees can be gradually brought back to health. For more information, visit the website sackvalleyorchards.com.
5: The trade agreement between the European Union and Japan coming on the heels of the United States' withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement is a bad omen for agriculture. American Farm Bureau economist Veronica Nye says this should show the U.S. that other countries are willing and able to strike trade agreements without American involvement.
6: We tried to drive that point home when we were talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that it wasn't a matter of the United States participating or not, rather other countries basically having a party without us. And this Trade agreement between the EU and Japan represents 30% of global GDP.
5: Nye says it's a big deal that America is looking at this agreement from the outside. Nye says the European Union received similar terms Japan would have given to the U.S. if we had ratified the TPP.
6: You see beef tariffs coming down significantly for the EU. You see additional access for dairy products and significantly reduced tariffs for pork. Beef and pork were two of the products where we thought we would see the greatest market access gains into
5: Japan. Some American exports, like corn and soybeans, won't experience a significant impact from this agreement because the EU doesn't produce a lot of either. Other American agriculture exports to Japan are going to be hit much harder. Beef and
6: pork, processed foods, wine and cheese, this agreement could lead to significant erosion of U.S. market share. Basically, the Japanese consumer is going to look at two pieces of beef, one from the European Union, one from the United States. One will face 9% tariff, so it will cost an additional 9% over the base price compared to the U.S. beef product. That's more
5: expensive than the base price. Nye says if America can't strike a trade deal with Japan that puts American producers on a level playing field with their competitors, the U.S. will lose share in the valuable Japanese market. Chad Smith, Washington.
2: Here's this week's California crop report. In Fresno County, the wheat harvest is almost complete. Alfalfa fields were growing well, and the cycle of cutting, windrowing, and baling was underway. Alfalfa for seed production is also growing well while being pollinated by honey and leafcutter bees. Spraying for ligus and aphids took place in alfalfa. Cotton appeared to be growing well, but was hit hard by ligus and aphids. Sweet corn and silage corn continues to show good growth in June. Sorghum was still being planted and being treated with herbicides and insecticides. Peach, nectarine, apricot, and plum harvest is in full swing. The cherry harvest almost complete. Apricot harvest is winding down for the year. Fruit orchards and vineyards were irrigated. Pesticides were applied to pomegranates. Fungicides and insecticides were applied to grapes. Valencia orange harvest is ongoing. Regreening in citrus has become more common due to the elevated temperatures. Packers were color sorting to compensate. Ruby red grapefruit are being harvested. Olive orchards were pruned. Harvesting continues in blackberry, blueberry, and strawberry fields. Walnut, almond, and pistachio orchards are being irrigated. Mechanical and chemical weed controls continue in the nut orchards. New almond orchards are being planted. Pistachios are being fertilized. Walnuts were sprayed for coddling moth. Summer vegetable season has started off well. Basil, bitter melon, cucumbers, daikon, eggplant, melons, okra, peppers, tomatillos, tomatoes, squash, and zucchini have all started to be harvested. They're showing up at roadside stands and at farmer's markets market onions have started to be harvested around fresno county growers continue to plant fields of melons eggplants cucumbers and squash the harvest has begun for early planted tomatoes tomato fields continue to be fertilized pesticides applied and were cultivated by hand weeding crews garlic is maturing nicely melons grew well and increased in size rapidly over the last month cantaloupe honeydew and watermelon harvest started towards the end of the month lettuce for seed production is maturing drip tape was pulled in garlic fields to let it dry out hot summer days continue to dry non-irrigated grasses and forbs rangeland was reported to be in good to very poor condition depending on elevation aspect and soil moisture fires across the state raged in forest and rangeland forcing some animal evacuations Cattle continue to be moved to higher elevation range. Milk production was impacted by the poor nocturnal temperature recovery. Sheep grazed on retired pasture and dormant alfalfa. Bees were active in alfalfa for seed, melon, sunflower, and vegetable fields. The availability of wild forage for foothill bees is diminishing. More of the KSTE Farm Hour right after this. Now
1: let's get back to the KSTE Farm Hour.
2: Last Wednesday, hundreds of farm workers gathered in downtown Sacramento and marched to deliver more than 100,000 petitions, holding a rally and news conference in front of the Cal EPA building in Sacramento. Why? To protest the recent EPA decision not to ban the organophosphate-based insecticide chlorpyrifos. The Environmental Protection Agency's proposed ban was scheduled to be announced on March 31st, but new EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt reversed the agency's course to continue allowing chlorpyrifos use in agriculture. The reason for the petitions was to encourage California's Department of Pesticide Regulation to step up and enact a statewide ban of that organophosphate. Already banned for home use back in 2000, the pesticide is applied in large quantities in California agriculture, especially on orange, walnut, almond, and alfalfa fields. Advocates of the ban say California must step up and end the state's use of chlorpyrifos more than 1 million pounds a year. That's roughly 10% of the national total. However, the farm community says chlorpyrifos is a valuable tool to fight a whole myriad of pests, and there could be big economic problems if this important tool was removed from their pest-fighting toolbox. Dan Putnam is a University of California Cooperative Extension agronomist and 4 H specialist, and he explains the value of this particular insecticide.
7: Clopairphos is also very particularly important for um, alfalfa weevil and for um, summer worm and aphid control. It's a broad spectrum insecticide that um, is very effective and and one that uh, growers depend upon. And um, one of the things that we look at this Particularly from an, uh, an IPM point of view, um, that is, we don't want to see growers using insecticides over and over again, particularly of one class. and And so, the, the key issue there is to have a diversity of tools so that they don't uh, overuse one particular tool. So, when you remove uh, this pesticide from the mix, that makes growers dependent upon other pesticides and reduces the uh, uh, options for controlling pest resistance to, to pesticides, which is, which is a big issue with, with, uh, several of our insect pests, particularly, uh, we've been seeing problems with weevils at alfalfa weevils with resistance to pyrethroid. Each one of these insecticides has its own issues. So we, we want to make sure that growers, uh, use cultural practices, but also don't become dependent upon one, um, one compound or another.
2: More and more farmers are employing beneficial insects to help them control the pests of the farm. And it may turn out to be, according to Putnam, that when it comes to choosing insecticides, chlorpyrifos may be a better choice to help protect those beneficials.
7: Pyrethroids are particularly hard on, on beneficial insects. So, what will happen if, if chlorpyrifos is lost for the alfalfa grower is that growers will use more and more uh, the pyrethroid class. And and this will be a real problem for the beneficial insects, the what we call the um, you know the ones that, that actually help us control uh, the pests in in alfalfa fields.
2: For the protection of farm workers, Putnam says the best advice may be the most logical advice: read and follow all label directions.
7: It's very important to follow the labels, and you know certainly we want to make sure that 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 these um, uh, insecticides don't affect workers or houses, people living near. Uh, near agricultural fields, and and most most growers are pretty conscientious about that. And certainly, from the university point of view, we'd like to see people being very uh, careful with their use of of all pesticides. Um, and um, with chlorpyrifos, and and you know, which is under scrutiny right now. But all all of all pesticides should be really carefully used. The dog days
8: of summer, usually the start of July to mid August, the hottest, most uncomfortable part of the season. And if you are a backyard poultry owner, this is especially true for your chickens.
9: Chickens are actually fairly susceptible to heat stress. They are like dogs in that they don't sweat. So most of their cooling is done through panting. A lot of times you'll see chickens kind of crouch with their wings out to kind of help facilitate some airflow under the wings. And the wattle and the comb also radiate a fair amount of heat.
8: Ashley Wright of University of Arizona Extension says heat stress at backyard poultry can result in decreased appetite, reduced egg production, potential heat stroke, even death. How can backyard bird owners protect their flocks from the heat? Wright says start by putting coops up under shade, such as trees.
9: The natural sort of shade is very effective at cooling. And then second option, you can even use things like temporary shade cloths if you need to, to shade more of a coop.
8: Where to place the shade cloth to keep the hot afternoon sun out is also essential. Wright emphasizes in the coop itself.
9: The number one thing to be aware of is ventilation, especially in those nest boxes. What it comes down to is ventilate those boxes. If you can't ventilate them, close them off.
8: To prevent chickens from entering into stuffy nest boxes that could lead to suffocation or heat stroke. In places where humidity is low, such as the desert Southwest, misters can help keep the flocks cool. Having cool drinking water available, of course, is essential. Wright says another tip is giving chickens and other poultry frozen treats, like fruit in a cube of ice. It's a nice
9: cool treat that can help them cool their bodies internally and encourage them to consume more water.
8: Poultry in hot conditions eat less, so Wright says the dietary emphasis should be on high nutrition feed and on avoiding corn and scratch grains.
9: What it does do is dilute the diet because it's high energy, but it doesn't really have all the vitamins and minerals that they need. First thing in the morning tends to be when it's coolest. So I wouldn't feed any treats during that time because you want to encourage them to eat their actual layer ration.
8: And if a bird shows signs of developing heat stress, such as heavy panting, lethargy, and a pale waddle and comb, Wright suggests to...
9: Take a bucket of cool and not ice cold water, and you can submerge her up to about her neck for just a few seconds in that water. And that can help cool her body temperature down to a more normal level. And then just give her some time to recover in a nice cool place until she's completely recovered and able to go back out.
8: I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
2: It was hot in June, it was hot in July, and guess what? Butter production could eventually be affected by all that heat in California. That's the conclusion of the American Farm Bureau's market analysis cows typically produce less milk and less milk fat during hot weather the analysis says that could ultimately affect the amount of butter produced in california which accounts for about thirty percent of the nation's production but it's unknown whether any impact would be noticeable at the grocery store there's going to be a lot of almonds this year. California's 2017 almond production is forecast at 2.25 billion meat pounds. That's up 2.3% from May's forecast, and it's up 5% from last year's crop. The forecast is based on 1 million bearing acres. Production for the nonpareil variety is forecast at 900 million meat pounds. That's up 10.7% from last year's deliveries. The nonpareil variety represents 40% of California's total almond production. The non average nut set of 5,717 per tree is up 2.4% from last year's set of 5,583. The average kernel rate for all varieties sampled was 1.57 grams. That's up 6% from the 2016 average of
4: 1.48 grams. When you track monthly U.S. agricultural exports versus imports. A
10: monthly trade deficit agricultural goods is pretty rare.
4: But it did happen during May. Agriculture Department analyst Bryce Cook says it was a very small deficit, $17 million out of about $10.7 billion worth of exports and imports. Again, a deficit even for one month doesn't happen very often.
10: The last time that there was a trade deficit was actually May of last year. That one was a little bit larger, at over $100 million.
4: This May's deficit was, again, very small, not totally unexpected. Total U.S. ag exports in May did drop from April, and Cook says quite a bit of that was because of typical patterns in soybean trade.
10: And soybeans are harvested in the fall and the export season for soybeans generally through now has passed, and and now it's the competitor countries for that product specifically, like Argentina and Brazil where they're now starting to sell their soybeans to the rest of the world.
4: And indeed, U.S. soybean exports in May took a dive. We sold only $574 million worth of soybeans worldwide.
10: That's 39% below the previous month. So
4: if you look year after year at soybean export sales patterns... You can
10: kind of see that the major months of exporting are earlier in the fiscal year than we are now.
4: But we did all right on soybeans up to May. Soybeans remain the number one U.S. ag export value product. And in the first eight months of this fiscal year, we've sold $19.5 billion worth of beans. And compared to the same time frame last year, that's up
10: 25% in value terms and 13% in volume terms.
4: Likewise, other major bulk commodity exports are running far above a year ago. Corn up 39% in value, 43% in volume. Wheat up 34% value. 43 percent in volume. And finally, the biggest increases for cotton value is up 101 percent and actual volume of sales up 76 percent. And so Cook says even with a tiny ag trade deficit this May, U.S. exports for the first eight months of this fiscal year, total exports are at ninety eight point nine billion dollars, 12 billion more than the same time in 2016 or 14
10: percent more.
4: And the U.S. is still running an ag trade surplus of almost $19 billion. The latest forecast for the entire year calling for total exports $137 billion with a trade surplus $22.5 billion. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington.
2: The KSTE Farm Hour continues after this.
4: And now let's get back to
1: the KSTE Farm Hour.
2: Nearly all California avocados come from regions near the South California coast. But University of California specialists are testing varieties that could thrive in the San Joaquin Valley. Test plantings are underway in three places. Finding avocados that produce well in interior locations would allow avocado marketers to extend the season for this California-grown fruit. Food, agriculture, technology innovators, and entrepreneurs from all corners of the state have a chance to win $10,000 and build an innovative solution in two and a half days. What's that all about? It's the Apps for Ag Hackathon, and it'll be held at the Urban Hive in Midtown Sacramento on July 28th and then all day July 29th and 30th. The final pitch and judging will be at the California State Fair at 4 p.m. on Sunday, July 30th. They're looking for passionate technologists, growers, entrepreneurs, scientists, and innovators to come together, define problems, pitch ideas, and create teams. This will help build an agriculture or food-related digital application in just 48 hours. If you're intrigued by that, visit the website appsforag.com
5: slash hackathon or Google the phrase apps for ag. The House of Representatives recently passed the Strengthening Career and Technical Education Act for the 21st century. The measure reauthorizes the Carl D. Perkins Career and Technical Education Act. AFBF Director of Congressional Relations R.J. Carney says this is vital legislation for the future of ag businesses. The high
11: school career and technical education programs are vital for developing talent and leadership, especially needed in farming and agricultural services, and also in regards to- to building economic future on rural communities.
5: The bill provides career and technical education, plus post-high school job training and retraining, all of which are necessary to build a skilled workforce. Skilled workers are as necessary in rural America as they are in urban areas. It's gonna help focus job training, which will really
11: benefit rural America to sustain jobs, sustain a skilled workforce. It's just as critical in urban and suburban communities as it is in rural America, and so, the Perkins Career and Technical Education Act is providing a focus which will provide economic viability for rural communities.
5: He says the programs in the Perkins Act are well-rounded ag education programs covering areas like horticulture, forestry, as well as plant and animal sciences. American Farm Bureau will be working to educate senators on benefits the legislation brings to rural communities. The Senate has not passed a bill yet and American Farm we will be working
11: with senators to ensure that the Perkins bill is reauthorized since it is such a critical component for achieving a viable workforce within rural communities and starting entrepreneur businesses and furthering agricultural leaders within
5: the agricultural system. Chad Smith, Washington.
2: Demand for California-grown fresh peaches has increased this year. Farmers say that's in part because they have a better crop than peach growers in other parts of the country. That's where weather problems have hurt yields. A preseason crop forecast projected California's production of fresh freestone peaches is going to grow about 13% this season, and production of canning variety peaches is also expected to rise. Recently, one truck driver found out that if you use a shipment of tomatoes to smuggle drugs, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection will catch up with you. Sorry about that. U.S. Customs and Border Protection Office of Field Operations at the Far International Bridge in South Texas discovered 50 pounds of cocaine in a commercial trailer hauling a shipment of Mexican tomatoes. The 16 packages of cocaine were commingled with the produce. During a secondary inspection of the vehicle, the officers utilized a non-intrusive imaging system along with help of a canine team to locate the narcotics. Customs and Border Protection seized the drugs from the shipment, as well as two others over the weekend. The three seizures have a combined estimated street value of approximately $940,000. That according to the Produce
3: News. Horses and people have been working together for hundreds of years.
12: There's an increasing body of knowledge that has pointed to some benefits of using or partnering with horses to do different work.
3: There is one relatively new area of cooperation, using equine assisted activities and therapies for people with special needs. In other words, therapeutic horseback riding. You can step it up and ask a thousand-pound animal to move forward, to stop, to turn left, and every little request is tended to. That is super empowering. This is Stephanie Ho, and in this week's Agriculture USA, we'll look at how therapists are harnessing the power of the horse to help people with physical, cognitive, and emotional challenges. I had an autistic rider who was moving around on the horse's back and kind of kicking the horse's side the entire half-hour lesson, couldn't help himself from shrieking. That was Nikki Beveridge, a certified therapeutic riding instructor at Rock Creek Park Horse Center in Washington, D.C. So by the end of the half-hour, I dismounted the rider. I had the rider stroke the horse, and I was petting the horse saying, "Ah, oh, thank you, Jackson. I am so sorry. That must have been so hard for you. And while While I was apologizing to the horse, the horse swung his gigantic big head right through my arms and nuzzled the rider. She says the horse was gentle because it understood the rider. The horse had never been stressed by this because he had known all along, he had felt all along that this wasn't directed at him. It had nothing to do with him. It was just something the rider couldn't help. Okay, that's the horse side of the equation, but how does the rider
12: benefit? When we look at the way a human's pelvis moves when they're sitting on the back, of a horse, The horse's walk produces human pelvic movement that's nearly identical to the human walk if they were just using their own two feet.
3: Erica Berg is an associate professor of equine studies at North Dakota State University.
12: So for somebody who might have a traumatic brain injury and they have hemiparesis, they're partially paralyzed on half of their body. Or somebody with cerebral palsy that doesn't have maybe a, a symmetrical gait, it can kind of help to normalize that person's gait.
3: Therapeutic horseback riding also helps riders with motor planning skills.
12: So when we get on the back of a horse, we have to do things in a certain order, or you end up backwards, or you end up maybe, you know, on the ground. And so it's really important that we have a a similar sequence of movements that we use we put our foot in the stirrup we put our hands on the horse's neck we swing our leg over the back we sit gently on the horse
3: and finally there is one almost intangible but important benefit
12: there's some peer-reviewed data so research actual research that's been done looking at individuals with the autism spectrum disorders that has demonstrated um, improved self-confidence improved self-esteem
3: therapeutic horseback riding traces its roots to a heroine and her horse jubilee
0: the 1952 Olympic opened in Helsinki, Finland. As yesterday- there was a dressage Olympian by
12: the name of Liz Hartel, and she was from Denmark, and she was partially paralyzed by polio when she was in her early 20s.
3: Although Hartel was a skilled horseback rider before she was stricken with polio, her doctors told her she would never ride again.
12: And what ended up happening was she proved them all very wrong and she actually won a silver medal in the sport of dressage.
3: Winning an Olympic medal is always a big deal, but why was this one especially significant? It
12: was the first time that a woman had won an equestrian Olympic medal, so that's very cool. It was the first time men and women competed equally in the sport of um, dressage and Liz Hartel did that to needing to be helped on and off of her so
3: Liz Hartel's achievement came before the very first Paralympic Games in 1960.
12: So she and a physical therapist by the name of Ulla Harpa started a program in Denmark um, after her equestrian career and it sort of just grew from there in Europe over to the UK and then in 1969. Um, PATH International, the Professional Association of Therapeutic the Horsemanship, was founded.
3: Why are organizations like PATH International important?
12: Because there are best practices and there are standards.
3: PATH instructor Nikki Beveridge at the Rock Creek Park Horse Center says she averages as many as 150 students each year. We serve age 4 through 94, and people with different disabilities could be MS, cerebral palsy, deafness, blindness, ADHD, really anything, as well as wounded warriors. We also work with military. She adds that she has seen someone in his 90s ride therapeutically, but that her oldest student now is only in her 70s.
0: The Olympic Fire is extinguished. And the 15th Modern Olympiad passes into history.
3: This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
2: We'll be right back to the KSTE Farm Hour.
3: And now let's get back to
1: the KSTE Farm Hour.
2: What if there was a relatively simple, cost-effective way to help feed the world, reduce pollution, pull carbon from the atmosphere, protect biodiversity, and make farmers money? Well, David Montgomery discovered the answer, and frankly, it's right below our feet. He's written a book called Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. It's a journey to uncover the blueprint for a regenerative agriculture that builds soil health and leaves both farmers and the environment better off. Besides writing this book, David Montgomery has written several books. He's a MacArthur Fellow, a professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington, The author of The Hidden Half of Nature and uh, one of my favorite books, Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. And, uh, David, I I think uh, this book, your new book, Growing a Revolution, kind of picks up where dirt left off because you ended that book with... As odd as it may sound, civilization survival depends on treating soil as an investment, as a valuable inheritance, rather than a commodity, as something other than dirt. And that's kind of like what conservation agriculture is all about.
0: Yes, it really it really does pick up nicely on that. And it, it catalogs and reflects my journey of, as a geologist, learning about farming practices and the, the role and importance of soil and supporting civilizations and how societies that didn't take care of their soil, didn't last for the long, over the long haul. And the new book, uh, Growing a Revolution, really uh, it drew from talking with farmers and visiting farmers around the world who are practicing regenerative agriculture and restoring fertility to their soil. And one of the things that gave me great cause for optimism uh, was how widely general, the simple general principles behind this can apply, how they can scale up and work on small farms and large farms, And how by reducing the input costs for farmers, the amount that they were spending on diesel and fertilizer and and pesticides, while maintaining their yields, it really resulted in better uh, on-farm economics. These farms were more profitable. And if there's one thing that everybody that lives in the city like myself needs, is we need to have farmers stay in business so they can feed us.
2: Exactly, and uh, I know people on this show are tired of me singing the praises of mulch, so I'll let you sing the praises of mulch, because that's really a big part of regenerative agriculture.
0: <laughs> oh, it really is. I mean, there's, there's sort of three general principles behind uh, the, the concepts of conservation agriculture, which were what many of these farmers I visited had adopted, and it, it boils down to minimizing disturbance of the soil surface, keeping the ground surface covered, uh, like with a mulch um, at all times with living plants, and also growing a diversity of crops. Of those three, keeping the, the soil undisturbed and having a mulch on the surface is actually really, really, a really, really simple and powerful technique. Now, it may be a different practice than many farmers are used to and that certainly haven't been used in all areas throughout history. But the, this combination of factors is really a um, combination of the ancient wisdom of, of cover crops and crop rotations along with modern knowledge Of how to actually operationalize um weed control without the plow and and mulch is a big part of all that so that the 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 way that uh and the my co-author on the hidden half of nature and i summarized the key message of that book was mulch your soil inside and out because there's direct parallels between what happens in a farm field and what happens in the human gut and that book ended up focusing a lot on that the new one, growing revolution is really more about how these ideas play out on modern modern farms in both the developed and developing world
2: on our show we've talked a lot about uh, the benefits of mulch in the drought and how by having a cover crop a living mulch if you will really makes the soil more water retentive and also the roots of the cover crop allow the water to uh, percolate even deeper down so we've seen the benefits of a living cover crop uh, as a mulch during a drought but this is uh, applicable to all farms in all places isn't it
0: yeah it was actually very it turned out to be very generalizable Um, and as a geologist i really like really generalizable things these sort of big patterns And that was one of the the take-home messages that I had from visiting farmers around the world who would adopted these practices, is the sort of the the hidden power of mulch, if you will. Um, People had different techniques and different methods of getting at it. They would combine it with different aspects of, of, uh, of their cropping system or their livestock management system in different places. But the idea of keeping the soil surface covered not only helps it hold moisture, and helps that that um, the water that that falls as rain to actually sink into the ground where you want it as a farmer, instead of running off over the surface, carrying away your nutrients in your topsoil where you don't want it as a farmer. Um, the mulch has a lot of a, a lot going for it in as a element of this system of of regenerative agriculture.
2: And as you point out, in your book, Growing a Revolution, this isn't anything new. I remember in your previous book, Dirt, you had a a graphic of a book published in 1708 called The Whole Art of Husbandry, or The Way of Managing and Improving of Land. And it's a lot of it's the same principles you talk about in your new book.
0: Yes, no, indeed. It's sort of the the marriage of these sort of ancient practices and ancient wisdom or, or traditional practices and then modern technology, and it's bringing those two together with the new twist really of doing it with minimal disturbance of the soil. So getting those ancient practices aligned with no-till practices. And that's been really something that has developed in terms of learning how to do that and options for doing it over the last uh, 50 years or so as the no-till farming movement has really gone from a a tiny minority of farmers in the Western world to I think in the US today it's on cropland it's something around about a third of farmers but adopting those other two pieces, the cover crops, the diversity of rotation, along with the no-till, is something that really completes the three-legged school of conservation agriculture and can lead to really surprisingly rapid improvements in soil fertility and in soil carbon content, which really goes towards feeding the microbes in the soil, the mycorrhizal fungi and the bacteria that it turns out really help with plant nutrition help with plant defense, uh, really bolster plant health, which in turn allows using less fertilizer and less herbicide and less pesticide, which saves farmers money and, and allows them to be able to maintain their harvests. Uh, and that's a really a winning combination.
2: I was surprised to learn in, in my conversations with a lot of uh, natural resources conservation service people how widespread no-till and cover cropping is in the Midwest, yet here in California, it's very slow to being adapted, but uh, that's going to have to change.
0: Yeah, you know, and I first, I first became aware of a, this sort of growing movement of farmers who are adopting these practices as a, as a new system of agriculture through visiting farmers in the Midwest. I went out to to Kansas years ago when my uh, Dirt Book came out, and frankly I was a little worried about going to an agricultural community and talking about how soil erosion had impacted societies throughout history. But I was thoroughly uh, uh, engaged and interested in talking to farmers about their experience in trying to restore fertility to their soil. And there's a lot of experience now in the American Midwest on trying to adapt this system of farming to circumstances in different parts of that region. And I would really like to see these ideas uh, spread globally. And I, don't, I take no credit for these ideas. I'm, I've, I've visited people who are already doing them, after all. But they really do offer a foundation for a, re- a, a revolutionary new way to look at farming and a tra- that has transformative potential to really greatly reduce the, um, the environmental footprint of farming But at the same time, revitalize um, the economics, the profitability of of farms, both large and small, in both the developed and developing worlds.
2: And that leads us right to the next question, which is what any typical farmer would ask is, well, what's in it for me? How much is this going to cost me? When can I make a profit doing this?
0: In, on the, on the far, each farm I visited was a little different and most of the farmers that I re- was visiting uh, really started to adopt this suite of practices sort of one step at a time they went no-till, then they added the cover crops and then they started to diversify the rotations. and the original motivation was almost always a period of economic hardship that left them in the position where they just didn't have the capital to use as many of the inputs as they had been using so there was a an economic impetus that led to sort of a change in thinking and practices. But as they saw their soil improve in quality, they realized that they could actually use less inputs to generate the same harvest, if not increased harvests. And and that that translated into greater farm profitability. And when those things all lined up, where people realized they could be better stewards of their land and leave it to their children and grandchildren in better shape than they got it from their grandparents, but make a profit at the same time, that really started to help these ideas spread. And the story in each region and each farm was, was obviously different, but the specific practices for how you'd implement that idea of minimizing disturbance, covering up the soil with cover crops and growing a diversity, would be different in different regions, you know, different climates, different crops, different economies around the world. But those general principles really translated and it translates into building the biologically driven fertility of the soil which then works in the farmer's favor to help them reduce their expenses for the chemical inputs that modern farming uh, so greatly depends on at present. So
2: basically, as you say in the book, park the plow, keep the soil covered with plants, grow a diversity of crops. The name of the book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life, the author, David Montgomery. David, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Hey,
0: well, no worries, friends. Pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific time and available anytime as a podcast at kste.com.